Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, which is an online dog behavior and training resource center. Today, I'm joined with Pine Irwin of Irwin Dog Training in Boise. Welcome, Pine. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. This is really exciting. I've never done a podcast before, so this yeah, is pretty well, awesome. Uh, Feels- well, me neither before this year. Yeah. So, um, so Pine and I are here today to talk about dogs in the outdoors. So how to take your dogs outside, why to do it, and what to do when things go wrong. Um, she and I are both really into outdoor adventures with our dogs, but I think it's safe to say that Pine is a real expert in teaching others how to take their dogs outside. Before we get going, Pine, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Um, I'm like, uh, like Kayla said, I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I live out here and I live out in the outdoors. I kind of grew up on a farm in the north, um, way north near the Canadian border. I spent a lot of time outside uh, about four years ago now, maybe five years ago now, actually. I started a club for hiking outdoors with your dog and it's kind of spiraled from there. I now do lead backpacking adventures. I teach people how to mountain bike with their dogs. I do specific classes in, through my business that are designed specifically to teach dogs to be outdoors safely and to backpack safely, doing things like everything from, you know, gear checks to weight to how, what to do with, you know, sore paws and stuff like that. Uh, I find that being outside with your dog is probably my favorite way to spend time with my dogs. Uh, and I think it's yeah, good too. for the dogs and good for us. Yeah. Right. It's beneficial. They, they've done all the studies about, you know, being outside, being good I th- for humans. And I'm, I feel pretty strongly that it's kind of the same way for dogs that I would agree. Outside, outside. Yeah. Outside's just better. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's. I had no idea that your business was that in depth. That's um, some pretty amazing niche services. I might have to uh, once I move to Missoula. I might have to come swing by. And yeah, check it out. it's not too far. Yeah, and I love how dedicated you are to getting dogs outside because, as you said, it's one of those things that I think when we're talking about ways to make our dogs' lives better, sometimes we forget about that. You know, we talk about nutrition and we talk about exercise, and we kind of forget that getting dogs outside can knock out both the exercise and kind of that mental decompression thing in one go. Um, So, a lot of us really feel like we're able to give our dogs kind of on leash, concrete walks around the city. And so kind of what's wrong with that? And, you know, the dogs are fed, they're loved, they're not obese. So what's missing with on-leash walks around the concrete jungle? Well, I mean, for starters, there's only so many different things that you encounter on your same route. Most people, when they take their dogs outside for a walk, they kind of have a path that they follow the same three blocks, the same weave through the neighborhood, the same park. And it's because it's convenient, it's an easy, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And of course, it's far superior than not doing that. Um, But when we take our dogs out onto the trail, we have an unknown number of things that we can encounter. And depending on your dog and your level of training, that can be both really enriching or kind of hazardous and sort of overwhelming for certain people. Of course, the more you do it, the less overwhelming it is. You end up with smells that are, you know, wild animals, other dogs, other people, uh, horses. Um, you know, we one time up on a trail ran into some people with pack llamas, which was a totally new Whoa. experience for our dogs. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guarantee you, I, I, 
didn't even recognize. I mean, I've seen llamas before, but at first I was like, whoa, what is that from a distance? <laughs> so, um, you know, and there's all that. And then not only that, there's different terrain. Um, pavement is really hard on, on joints. It's hard on our joints. I know if I go for a three mile walk down a paved path, it's totally different feeling at the end than going for a three mile walk. And even if you're out on leash on a trail, the joints aren't taking the impact. The dirt is much softer. It's much more forgiving for both of you, both you and the dog. And then there's, you know, the off leash component. A lot of trails are off leash. The further out you go, the more off leash they can have. Dogs, their idea of a good time is not necessarily to walk right next to us in a perfect heel, right? Like left to their own devices, they kind of go over here, pee on that. They run over here, maybe sniff this, this thing that is probably not good. Poop, dead things, roll <laughs> oh, in yeah. something suspicious, you know, do all that. And they kind of zig and zag around and they sort of move around in big circles and quadrants, you know, depending on the breed, there's, there's a certain level of that. And that is much more natural way for a dog to be. And when we ask them to heal nicely or walk nicely on a leash through the city, we've restricted that movement. We're not giving them that ultimate freedom. You know, of course we can't give them ultimate freedom because we obviously have to be safe, but on leash, Hiking is even superior for that because there's the stopping and the smelling and all those things. And I feel that that sort of enrichment and that ability for a dog to just sort of dog for a couple of miles is really beneficial long-term and short-term. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I actually was just thinking about this last night. So I'm currently in San Jose, Costa Rica. And uh, my dog and I went out for a run last night and I was noticing that he was running behind me, which is really unusual for him. Um, he usually is out in front of me or at least next to me if he's tired. Um, and we eventually made our way to uh, San Jose has this big, I think it's a central park maybe in called La Sabana and it's huge. And we made it there and it's dirt paths and you actually can kind of get away from the noise of the city and in among some trees. And as soon as we were in there, um, he's out in front of me and his tail's back up and he looks great. And I had actually been spending the first two or three miles of this run thinking, do I need to go into the vet? Like, is there some, is he in pain or why is he running behind me? And I realized that it's just when there's that much traffic and stuff close to him, he would rather be behind me. And then as soon as we were yeah. out on even this, you know, relatively urban park trail, he was like, oh, okay, I'm better. I can do this now. Um, and that dramatically seemed to brighten his spirits, even on kind of that small distinction. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, <sighs> There's so much in the city that we have to be aware of. I mean, other pedestrians, we cars, obviously, and things like that. When you when you hit that trail, that kind of stuff goes away. And not to say that it doesn't exist. You know, there's other trail users and stuff, but it's not to the same level. We get to relax as humans because we're no longer worried that puppy's going to dive into this traffic off the sidewalk and get hit by a car. And that in turn allows the dog to relax. And again, it's a little bit more of a natural way for a dog to approach the universe in which they, they get all that freedom of smelling this and zigzagging over here and doing all those things that they want. Even if, even when they're on leash, they still get a lot more of that when we're hiking with them. Very rarely do we hike down a trail with the dog at a perfect heel. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. say that's something I've never done. Maybe once for like a training demo video, just to see if yeah. I could. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. If I'm asking him to heal, it's because I need, we have to walk past something. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, otherwise, yeah, you know, it's something and it's temporary. It's, it's a handful of yards and then we're free again and we get to do whatever we want. Um, I typically, if I'm on an on-leash trail, I just hook 
leashes up to their harnesses and, you know, especially if we're going uphill, pull, pull guys, pull. Yeah, yes, <laughs> please. Know? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get a little bit of an assist going up the hill. So yeah. stuff like that. And I just, um, and never, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of other things that go into that, but there's, you know, the talk we can, I think later on, we're going to talk a little bit about body awareness and stuff like that, but yeah, it's just yeah, yeah. better for them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so you're lucky enough to be in Boise and pretty soon here, I'm going to be living in Montana. So we're going to have tons of options for outdoor stuff. What about for people who live in a little bit more of like an urban environment? Um, what ideas do you have for kind of helping people get out of the concrete jungle a little bit as much as possible? Um, yeah, um, I it's always funny because I live in Boise, so I'm really spoiled that I, it's probably about 30 minutes from my front door to hit a trailhead. It's a pretty busy trailhead, but it's still a trailhead. Um, so I, I get a little spoiled with that. And I have to remind myself that there are people who do. They live in places where it's two, three hours to the nearest trailhead, and it's still congested, jam-packed kind of experience. And when that happens, I try to think of other ways to achieve enrichment. One of the things is a lot of cities have big parks. And those big parks have small wilderness areas, like you were talking about when you're in Costa Rica, that there's this big kind of central park sort of area. And those areas, I feel like taking advantage of, even if they're on leash, um, you can just get a longer leash. I mean, the leash laws say, you know, you have to have them on a leash. Well, it doesn't say you can't have them on a 10 foot line versus a six foot. And then you can give them that sort of off-leash experience while still maintaining legality and all that stuff. Because I know that that's a big one. Some of those fines in some of those big cities can yeah. get pretty intense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So finding a big park, exploring your local parks. The other one is making a commitment um, to yourself and to your dog to go find those areas where it's a little bit more wild, even if it's just outside town and it's a dirt road, you know, through a couple of farmers fields or something like that, finding those spots and taking advantage of those spots is really key to both of you being able to mentally unwind. I know that it can be hard. And, you know, if you live someplace like New York city, it's going to be really tough. Um, but central park's pretty big and it's got some areas that are pretty remote. Um, don't hit them at night. Uh, unless you yeah, have a really yeah. big dog. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, and I think that's a great point about like gravel roads and fields and stuff. Um, I know when I lived in Denver, I and Denver still has amazing recreation opportunities, but there were definitely times where yeah. I didn't have time to drive out that far. And we, we could still usually find some dirt road, generally east of Denver, because traffic's not as bad that way. If you're heading out towards the plains, there's no one out there. And we could just put Barley on a 20-foot leash and... He doesn't care that he yeah. doesn't get mountain views. Um, he's just as exactly. happy to chase the bunnies through the tall grass as he is to to hike up some, you know, epic mountain pass. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people forget that dogs are very, they're not terribly existential. They're very much in the moment. So, you know, your dog doesn't come home from a dirt road walk where they got to just zigzag across the road that was, you know, nobody was out there and they chased a couple of gophers and they, you know, maybe found a cow pie or something interesting. Um, they don't come home and go, well, that, that walk would have been so much better if I'd climbed, you know, to the top of Everest or something like that, or I've had an epic view of the sunset as it was going down. They just, they live so much in that moment. Your dog comes home after their, their dirt road walk. And they're just like, yeah, that was awesome. You know, that was great. I got to go do all these things. And I, I you know, I chased a whistle pig for, you know, half a mile or something. And 
So if people forget that and they get caught up in this idea that every walk or every hike has to be some great epic adventure. It's got to be 14 miles or bust, right? Dogs just, they don't care. They, they really don't. They work cheap and they're, they're, they're very much in that moment and they appreciate everything they get. So dirt roads are a great option. And in most, most towns, you can find some sort of dirt pathway to go and explore. And again, you know, a 10 foot line is still legally on leash and you get the off leash feeling while maintaining safety. And I, I emphasize that to a lot of my clients with dogs that are unreliable on their recall. I'm like, put them on a long line. You know, it's perfectly safe option, prevents, prevents tragedy, prevents making mistakes. And they still get that feeling and they're not going to go home and be like, well, that would have been better if I could have gone another 20 feet, you know, to the West. Right. Like, yeah, of course. They're fine. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's also a good point for um, behaviorally challenging dogs. I used I used to do quite a bit of fostering of dogs with reactivity or aggression issues, and um, we would often take the dogs kind of preferentially to those rural um, dirt roads because we're less likely to run into other dogs that are going to cause us problems if we're out exactly. on something that's not a trail because who else is walking their dog out there? Um, right. Exactly. And I, I, yeah. And I think people forget that, that a dirt road is just as good as a dirt path to most dogs. And yeah, when you have a dog that is more reactive or is not quite ready for that sort of experience of being on a main trail with a lot of other traffic, um, yeah, dirt roads are great. They're so yeah. much fun. And a lot of those places you can go and there's places, you know, through national forests on those national forest roads that are completely abandoned. You know, you're mm -hmm. not going to see another car for three hours. Uh, so make sure your vehicle's reliable when you go out there. Uh, don't <laughs> yeah, go definitely. out there with the old beater because uh, you're not going to see another vehicle for three hours. But getting out there and just letting them run on those dirt roads is often sometimes even better because it's a wide open road. It's an open space and they can really mm -hmm. just let it rip. It's great for if you're want somebody who wants to run too, and your trails aren't great. Cause we kind of have that in the spring here where sometimes the mm -hmm. trails get really muddy and you can't be on them and don't want to be on them cause it's filthy and slippery, but you hit a dirt road and man, you can just go for yeah, forever. It's fine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a quick break here for a word from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about safety issues for having your dogs outdoors and especially off leash. This episode was sponsored by Canine of Mine, an online dog care resource that aims to provide owners with all the info that they need to be better pet parents. Canine of Mine has a ton of great resources from adoption guides and dog food recommendations to breed profiles and training tips. And a lot of those training tips are actually written by yours truly, Kayla. I actually worked on the dog adoption guide and it's pretty awesome. And it actually relates to what we've been talking about today in this episode, as far as figuring out what you need, what you really want, and what are kind of bonus points for your potential dog. And it includes a downloadable spreadsheet that I used when I was looking through dogs and trying to find Barley. And Barley scored 99 out of 100 on it, I think. And, um, you know, in my opinion, he's perfect. Um, and it gives you a guide to creating your own um, kind of score sheet for figuring out what you want, what you need in a dog, and how to find a dog that meets your needs um, and your desires that way. So Canine Mind also focuses on a ton of other really common frequently asked questions for dog owners, ranging from what to do when your dog eats a diaper to what kind of dog is best for owners who love running marathons. 
Canine of Mine is a fantastic resource for any dog owner looking to take better care of their canine, and you can check them out at canineofmine.com, which is spelled with the letter K and number 9ofmine.com. All right, so we are back, and now let's talk about some of the logistical challenges of getting outside with your dogs. Um, Safety. With your group, Pine, do you mostly work on leash or off, and how do you decide which is most appropriate for that moment? Uh, Mostly we're off leash. We've actually found that being off leash works a little better in terms of keeping the peace. A lot of times when I have people sign up, I've never met them. I've never met their dogs. I have no idea what to anticipate. I ask a couple of preliminary questions, you know, did, have you ever done any training with your dog? What kind of dog do you have? You know, tell us a bit about their personality. For the most part, we have pretty good results with the idea of keeping them off leash and keeping moving. Movement is one of the big things. And I'm I'm not sure that there's enough talk about that in dog training in terms of, particularly in terms of behavior, that movement is beneficial, keeping a dog's feet moving. If we stay moving, conflict is almost never an issue. We kind of figure out, you know, there's going to be dogs that are going to want to be out in front. They're moving fast. There's dogs that are a lot slower. So we put them in the back and we kind of just spread out. It's when we stop moving, you know, because we get to the top of the hill and we're all panting and like, oh my gosh, got to get a drink. That's when usually we start to see, you know, the dogs get a little squirrely because we're out in the open or out in the wilderness, there's plenty of space because nobody's on a leash. Nobody feels restricted. So it tends to reduce conflict in terms of large groups. Um, and we've been out there with something like 20 something dogs before, you know, a couple, a dozen humans and double the number of dogs. Um, so, and it, it, we just almost never have a conflict because we stay moving we sort of suss it out. When we do have dogs that are having a hard time, we do ask that the owners put them on a leash, take a few minutes, five, 10 minutes, usually by about five minute mark, you start to see the dog calming down. Whatever was causing the issue, the overstimulation is usually what it is, kind of sorts itself out and we just kind of move on with our lives. Um, because our trails, because our trails locally are almost all off leash, we only have a couple that aren't. That is an option we have. When it's an on leash trail, things are a bit different. Again, the idea is to keep moving, spacing. I know that other dog trainers use that idea of group walks um, to help dogs with reactivity to kind of get adjusted to being in the presence of other dogs, and that forward momentum sort of carries the weight of things and and reduces conflict because we're moving forward. So it's the same idea. I kind of, we sort of have a rule um, and we make sure that everybody knows it when they sign up that you are responsible for your dog, your dog's actions, your dog's safety. We're going to do our best to help you and keep everything under, under control. But at the end of the day, it's your call. Uh, If I start to notice a dog is really kind of taken off and heading for the hills, I will be like, yeah, maybe that dog needs to be on a leash because they're not reliable. Yeah. So, but in terms of personally, someone personal, you know, if you're not being led by a big group or anything, I think the, the safety issue, the biggest safety issue is probably recall being able to call your dog. And if you feel confident in your dog's recall, off leash, you know, rock and roll. And I, I have a whole system of, you know, how I develop a, a solid recall. Like most trainers, we all kind of have our tricks and things that we do, but that is probably my big issue. I would say being able to call your dog back away from other dogs, other hikers, bikers, wild animals, 
is the big one. And that call ultimately is going to come down to your decision. You know, how much training have you put in? How much time have you put in? If you're not sure, bust out the long line. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree let on drag that. A, let, let them drag a rope for, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly safe. And the worst thing you have to do is untangle them from a tree now and again. Yeah. Which is definitely. way easier than untangling yeah. them from a bear. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I know when I, when I'm trying to work on off leash stuff with clients, um, I often recommend having a couple different options that you can use. Um, so like with my own dog, we do, we have recall, we have, you know, come when called. Um, and then I'll also do hand targets, which from my point of view are almost exactly the same thing, but for Barley, it's often a lot easier for him if he's really distracted or really amped up. Cause it's such a concrete, um, behavior that he has to do. He has to come and he has to slam his nose against my hand. And that also guarantees he's going to come close enough that I can grab him if I need versus sometimes with come when called. I know we all get a little fuzzy about, <laughs> about the definition of that. And then all of a sudden we've got a dog who like, he stops moving forward when you tell him to come and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, that's such a great point. I, I teach the, one of the first things I teach is the hand target uh, because it's something concrete. It requires them to come in close. It requires an active motion. And yeah, and I, I use that as a backup. It's like, yeah, okay, I called you and maybe that's not working, but man, I, I throw my hand down and I yell touch, boy, they come, they come running. I have that one. I have, I have a few other options. I have a one that's called off-road, which has started as me just trying to teach them to get off the trail so a biker could pass, but they all associate it with getting a reward. So it, it kind of works as a recall as well, <laughs> kind of oh, inadvertently. Yeah. yeah. They all get off the trail, but they also come in because they're hoping to get their snacks and their rewards. Um, I've warned people that they should carry the reward. I don't care how well trained your dog is. I don't care how many obedience titles they have. Carry that reward because I want to be the most interesting thing on the trail. And I, I have a very hard time competing with a skunk. I'm just, I'm really not that cool. And so if I have, if I have that backup plan of, okay, recall, you can touch, you can off-road. I have three or four different ways of saying, I need you to just generally get your butt back over here. Um, I also offer my dogs a check-in command, which is simply, you can just run past me, you know, just like, Hey, oh, check cool. in. And they just come do a flyby. And that uh -huh. sort of brings them in to that zone of like, yeah, whatever you were looking at in the distance. Nah, how about we come over this way and that kind of stuff. A lot of it, it comes down to knowing where you're at with your training. And again, if you're feeling insecure with anything your dog has, any behavior your dog has, man, get that line out. That, that is a direct line. They can't, they can't screw up if they can't get too far. Yeah, I would definitely agree on that. And the last thing that I know I've found really, really helpful with Barley is we've got kind of an emergency down at a distance. Um, which is something that I think I'd heard people recommend before and just never really understood why you would want it. And then I've been using it all the time lately. Um, we were on a, a beach town in Costa Rica last week and we kept running into horseback riding um, tours. And having that down at a distance was really nice because there were a couple of times where the horses were in between me and him and I didn't necessarily want to call him through the horses. Um, yeah. but I also didn't want him to keep going. And one of the things I was running into that I've never considered before for off leash stuff in near the ocean is we would get to a distance where normally I would be fine with him, but the, with the roar of the ocean, he couldn't hear me anymore. Yeah. So that's where kind of having that like down or wait cue was really, really nice because I, 
want, I didn't necessarily need him to come all the way back to me, but I, if he went any further, I knew he wouldn't be able to hear me if I called him again. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of knowing your environment because most people, if you're not on an ocean, that's obviously not something you're ever going to think about or encounter. Um, and knowing your environment is, is as important as knowing your dog, knowing what you're walking into and where you feel comfortable on this and this trail versus that trail on a trail where I can see three or four miles up ahead because we're kind of out in the desert and it's wide open, you know, and there's not really going to be a lot. I'm more comfortable giving my dogs a lot more leeway. They can go a little bit further on a trail that's really twisty and narrow and windy. I tend to keep them pretty close they all kind of learn um, early on that I had, there's a radius in which I will pretty much leave you alone. And if you cross the radius, that's when I'm going to start nagging you to come back and do things for me. And they, it, it doesn't take long for them to figure out that within, you know, this 10 foot all the way around, I'm pretty much free to do whatever I want as long as I stay here. And they, they stay pretty close because I reinforce that so much when they're, when they're learning to be out there with me. Um, they start, I usually, most of my dogs I've started young, but, um, some of them have been a little bit older when we've really hit the trail because I get them as they're older, but yeah, there is that an emergency down is really awesome. Not only that, it takes a significant amount of patience and skill to teach that down. And so once you get there to teaching that, um, not that you requires a trainer, but it takes a lot of time to teach in that emergency down and a lot of commitment and if you put that into that emergency down or an emergency sit, or for my guys, it's a halt. Um, there's just like, stop moving your feet. <laughs> uh, that takes time to teach and putting in that level of time ensures that you're putting in the time other places. I found that anybody who takes the time to teach an emergency stop on their dog probably put in the time for recall and all those other things. But, and you just never know when something like that will be handy, but you've done all the other legwork too. So by doing all that other legwork, you're pretty much guaranteed that that you're going to have a dog that's pretty safe out there on the trail. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have any favorite recall games that you want to just give us, give us one that, um, for people who are looking to add one more to their, to their toolkit? Um, I really like for families um, or for couples, um, popcorn is probably my favorite where we, we round everybody up in a kind of a circle and we put the puppy in the middle and we just play, you know, come to whoever is calling you. Um, I like that one for families because it teaches the dog to respond to mom, dad, kids, um, all of everybody. Uh, that one's pretty handy because there's a lot of times, you know, that the dog will just blow off the kid, but maybe the kid's seeing something mom and dad aren't. So recall is really, that's a big one. I like popcorn. Um, it's a little bit harder to play by yourself. Um, if you're, if you're on your own. So one of my favorite games is I, um, play chase and I, I get you to, I call my dog and I recall the dog and then I run like hell the other direction and I call in and bouncing around and make it a game of coming in to tag me, basically play tag with me. And if you get me, then you win all the snacks, you win all the praise. I'll bust out a tennis ball and throw that. I find that getting the dog to play the game of you chase me versus me chase you, um, ends better for me. I'm never going to catch it. I don't have enough feet. They've got four feet, right? And they're going to outrun me every time. But if I can convince you that recalling in and chasing me is really fun, then I guaranteed that the game I will win. And you, the dog can win too. Obviously, I always make sure anytime a dog um, checks in with me or comes in close, 
I make sure I make a point of rewarding that somehow, either giving them a scratch under the chin or a food reward. Or, you know, if I'm out there with one of the dogs that's toy obsessed, I'll toss a stick or something like that. Um, I feel like that is particular. One of the things that I do to really emphasize recall is that any motion in my direction is good. Hanging out with me is good. Uh, I do have a, one of my dogs kind of works the system and she'll kind of come out at 10 feet or so and then return to come and get a snack. And I'm like, I know you're working me, but I'm, I'm going to do it just so that, you know, you always know that coming to me will always be good. Always, no matter what. Yeah, I have a ball fiend, Border Collie, and I uh, I try to occasionally sneak a tug or a ball or something into my bag so that he doesn't know I've got it and occasionally surprise him with that instead of some jerky. Um, but what I tend to find is if I've got a ball with me, I end up with a dog who is trying to high five me or do leg weaves or heel or yeah, like, exactly. like I can't get him out yeah. from under me, which is a great problem to have, but exactly. um, kind of yeah. the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, if you've got a dog who's really obsessive about toys or even food, I've seen similar problems with dogs that are real chow hounds. Yeah. I I think there's, there's a, there's a level of motivation. I always kind of carry multiple motivators, toys, food, all that kind of stuff. And I sort of apply as necessary. If I can get away with a lower end motivator, that's what I do and save the really valuable tennis ball. I mean, I've got Labradors, so tennis balls are like the greatest thing that's ever happened. I save those for when I'm really going to need it. If it's something really important, um, that way I'm not being harassed the entire time. Cause, uh, my gut, I'm not very tall and my dogs are pretty large and I'm just going to face plant in the dirt if you're trying to weave through my legs all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so we've talked a little bit about some other safety stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about wild animals. Um, living in Boise, yeah. I'm sure you've got some animals that are both kind of dangerous for people and dogs. Um, how do you deal with those risks? How do you kind of decide how to go forward? And what do you what do you do to prepare for kind of that inevitable grizzly encounter? Well, I think a lot of it is knowing your environment. Um, it doesn't take, you know, you don't have to have a master's degree in biology or environmental science to kind of understand the area in which you live. Um, because I live in Boise, I am basically two hours in any direction from totally different terrain. It's it's kind of an amazing aspect of living here. I go two hours north and I've got wolves and grizzly bears to contend with. I go two hours south and it's rattlesnakes and um, sinkholes and things like that. So knowing my environment is a big part of that and then understanding what dangers are present in that environment, not to an obsessive point where, you know, you're ticking off the list, but to a point where you recognize things that are warning signs. If I'm in rattlesnake country, I know what time they're active, what temperatures they're active at. You know, it's kind of 68 to 72 degrees is sort of prime, um, prime time for rattlesnakes. I know that they like to be in rocky outcroppings that happen to be near water sources and they tend to hide in those areas. So if I'm in those areas, I keep the dogs away from rocky outcroppings. I just call them away from it, you know, and things like that. If I happen to be hiking in a prime time zone for rattlesnakes, I might leash the dogs and keep them close. Uh, knowing where they are, knowing what to expect of them. I mean, they're wild animals. They have a predictable pattern of, of behaviors, you know, if we can understand what their behavior is, we can understand how to stay safe. When it gets to be prime time rattlesnake season, I 
generally don't hang out in rattlesnake country. I go north and avoid that them. That makes a lot um, of sense. <laughs> Rattlesnakes scare the crap out of me. Yeah. Well, and I had a dog get bit one time and it was a total freak thing. There was no warning. There was absolutely nothing we could have done other than just not be in that place at that time. Um, the snake happened to be going through the grass and the dog, it was my young lab. She just stepped on it and she had no idea it was there. I had no idea it was there. We just wrong place, wrong time. And so I'm extra paranoid about rattlesnakes. I get above 5,500 feet. They're not really an issue anymore. That's kind of, they stay in the lower level. See, it's stuff like that, that you learn with grizzly bears. Um, very rarely have I ever come upon a bear with the dogs. The dogs pretty much keep the bears at bay. The bears are pretty much like, okay, we're out. Uh, knowing not when it, yeah. cubs. Yeah, they, they, they keep them at bay because the bears don't want to screw with the dogs any more than we want them to be screwing with the dogs. Knowing when cubs are going to be out and active is a big part of that because cubs are foolish and make bad choices. And that's when you really get into trouble. Knowing the difference between a grizzly bear and a black bear is a big part of that as well. Black bears are going to be a lot less scary than grizzly bears, generally speaking. Um, you see them side by side and you will know which is which, but uh, there's some key differences in temperament. Typically, if I'm in an area where I start to see markings, um, the scratches on the trees, the up high, um, indicates that there might be bears in the area. Like I'm pretty good at looking at identifying scat um, droppings and knowing what those are and then being like, okay, that looks like it's been there for three weeks. So we're probably okay. But there was a bear at some point. Yeah. Why don't we, why doesn't everybody stay a little bit closer? That kind of stuff. Knowing when predators are active. Uh, we've had several incidences over the last few years of cougars, uh, mountain lions getting aggressive with bikers out on the trail with their dogs. Um, we actually had a guy a couple of years ago who's, who was attacked and it was pretty scary. And I got a, several phone calls about like, Oh my gosh, what should we do? What should we do? And I was just like, well, here's the thing about cougars. You know, this is where they are. This is what they do. This is when they're active. This is what they're likely to do. Um, my guys have hazed a couple of cougars that were getting a little too close. I, I've got large dogs and they're trained to do that kind of thing. But it's knowing your environment, know your predators, know what they want where they're going to be, and then just work around it. If you know that, you know, at 6 p.m. when the sun's starting to go down, this place is prone to having mountain lions traveling through it. Maybe 6 p.m. when the sun's going down is not when you go hiking. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> you just pick your, pick your battles. <laughs> There's no way to make it 100% safe. We can't guarantee that nothing bad will ever happen. But if you remain up to date and educated on what to expect, um, getting in contact with local Facebook groups for your local trails and things like that, they're, they're out there for every place. Um, and, you know, asking people about things or reading the responses, because I guarantee you, no one has ever encountered a bear on a trail and not posted about it on Facebook. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> um, every single time I've run into a bear, it has been on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Right. And so you're just like, you know, some guy has, has, you know, will post about it. He said, oh yeah, last night we saw blah, 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 blah on X trail. And you read that and you go, okay, well, maybe that's not where we, where we go today. Maybe we pick another direction. We pick another place. Know your environment. It's, we talk about, you know, we talk about that with our dogs on the cities and knowing what our dog likes and what they don't like. And knowing that, you know, a bicyclist whizzing past you is going to be a trigger 
here, but we need to understand that we're sharing the trails with the wilderness. We're sharing it with the wild animals. And that's part of the magic of being out there, but know what to expect and, and know that a deer in rut during breeding season is just as dangerous as a grizzly bear, if not more so. I was going to say when I was in Colorado, we, um, I think I've had more scary experiences with moose um, yeah, than with moose are just about any other and moose and, uh, the, the, the mountain goats, um, are always pretty scary. And especially cause both of them are pretty used to being around people in Colorado. So if you're on a popular trail, um, you have to move because they won't. Um, and if your yeah. dog's off leash and you round a corner and then all of a sudden you're face to face with like, I have no idea how big a Billy mountain goat is, but they look massive. Um, and I'm not, sh- it would not go well. Oh. No, no. Um, even if they're not super huge, they're they're bigger than a standard pet goat that you might find. Um, but they are they can do some damage. <laughs> and we are ultimately as a species, humans and dogs, we're relatively fragile compared to those animals that have evolved to 100 percent withstand their environment. And moose are terrifying. I pretty much have a car, I have a rule that if I see any evidence that a moose has been in the area and then recently we're leaving. Uh, moose don't care. <laughs> they, they'll run you over as soon as they will look at you. It's just like, nope, we're out. We're out. That's we're leaving now. So yeah, definitely. And I just, I just looked it up and mountain goats can weigh between a hundred and 300 pounds. Yeah. And that's so. a lot of pressure to be hitting a 50 pound dog or even a yeah. 200 pound human. That's that can do some damage. Yeah, and, and I know I've us. seen videos of, you know, the dog missed getting hit, but was chased off a cliff as well. Which exactly. Is yeah. Horrifying. Well, <laughs> um, it is terrifying. So. And that's where that recall comes in. You see exactly. something like that. So get back here, put you on a leash, and we're just going to quietly and peacefully back away and hope you don't get mm-hmm. mad about it. Yeah. And no, and I think knowing your dog as well, um, I was just on the phone with a friend who has lived back and forth with her dog. Um, and she lives out of a van and works as a trail guide, um, basically all up and down the Pacific Northwest from Alaska to Seattle. Um, and I was asking her a little bit about what she does. And she was like, you know what, our, our dog, the first time we ran into a bear, we didn't know what she was going to do. She was off leash and, we froze and we stayed quiet and she froze and she stayed quiet. And the next time we ran into a bear, it was a different situation. And we started yelling and waving our arms to spook the bear away. And she started boofing with us. So with a dog like that, you, if you know that that's your dog, you can trust her on a different level than if you know that you've got a boisterous dog that is less likely to listen to you in that sort of situation. Um, and don't put your dog into a situation where you're running into bears to figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a time and a place for that. But um, I think that comes back. Yeah, know your dog. Know who your dog is at a core level. Um, even the best trained dog, some of them have issues where they've got weak spots. And generally speaking, if I'm encountering wild animals, I, if I see evidence of them or I happen to see something up ahead, I just leash my dogs. It's safer for them. It's safer for me. And we just kind of give it some time. There's a joke about that with hikers. For every bear you see, there's 10 you didn't. Exactly. And I feel like that is really true when you're hiking with a dog because most wild animals just don't want to screw with the dogs. And they're willing to just kind of give you a wide berth. And, of course, that means you you don't get to see them, which is somewhat disappointing. But also your dog doesn't see them and then run after a deer. Uh, We had a case of that 
this dog um, just recently made headlines across the country. The dog had been missing for nine months. She chased a deer off. It was a Labrador, you know, not, not some high drive, high energy um, dog. You know, she was just a basic Labrador and she chased a deer and got lost and they couldn't find her. And I nine can't believe they found later, her for nine to months. Right. I mean, that's amazing in of itself. That's like a Disney movie kind of thing happening. Um, but it was that fast. It was that simple. She saw the deer. She went and chased the deer and she chased it so hard and so fast that she just couldn't find her way back to her people and her people couldn't find her. And that's pretty scary. And that's, you know, again, know your dog, know who your dog is and know that, you know, there is a there is the chance that you're going to encounter wild animals. And if that is your dog is the type who gets into that mode of high prey drive chase and doesn't listen, might be a good day to keep them on a leash. Put them on a 10 foot line. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you hike with your dogs wearing um, bells or anything like that? Uh, there's two schools of thought on that. Sometimes I do. If I, if I feel like I'm going to be somewhere where that might be beneficial to me, if even in terms of letting other people know that I'm coming, uh, I'm from Northern Idaho where crazy redneck is like the original blueprint for who people are up there. Um, there, there are people who live in the woods and you'll just happen upon them. And it's a little intimidating. I've had that happen more than once growing up as a kid. So I will keep bells on if I suspect something like that, just so that they, anybody else knows I'm coming. Of course, there's a joke amongst backpackers that if you're wearing a bell, it just tells the bear to come and find you. Um, you know, just where dinner is. So it's, it's kind of a hit or miss. My dogs wear a lot of They've got their name tags and a rabies tag and their licenses and stuff. And that makes quite a bit of noise. And I like that as on a personal level, because I can kind of keep track of where they are in terms of, yeah, you know, I personally really like hearing where my dog is. I, I wear, exactly. I, like he wears a bell, I think more for me than for anything else. Exactly. It's just for me to be able to hear them if they're, if they drop behind me for something or if they move, you know, just to an area where I can't see them as well. I usually recall out of those situations. Cause like, I can't see what you're interested in. Get over here. But I like the bell because it tells me where they are, the noises. So and mostly I, their tags. Um, I've lost more than a few in the wilderness, uh, but bells and stuff for that. I, I'm not really sure they work that well for bears. Um, I, think I don't know if anyone has done a, uh, a blind trial on that. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a little scary. Um, you know, yeah. and it might work for black bears and not for grizzlies and it would sure. be terrifying. It's, it's sort of the guy who tests the shark bite suit, you know, like who loses the short straw on that one to test, <laughs> yeah. to make sure the shark bite suit works. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, I would, I, yeah you, that's a good point. I would imagine the bells might deter more skittish predators like coyotes really well. Um, versus, especially if you're looking at, cause m most of the time with our animal attacks, we're looking at something like an adolescent male with a tooth abscess, who's looking for his territory and he's hungry. Um, cause it's yeah. usually that unusual situation where we're getting those attacks and who knows if, if yeah. we've got an adolescent male with a tooth abscess, he's not going to behave the same way as your, your normal grizzly bear, quote unquote. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, most of the time when we see animal attacks, particularly animal attacks on dogs, um, it's, it's often extenuating circumstances. For the most part, there's very few animals that don't 
innately fear people and want to sort of leave them leave us alone. They don't want to be a part of us. They've evolutionarily speaking learned that we carry really big firearms and we're we're kind of gnarly to deal with and we'll hunt you down and eat you. So they kind of want to leave you alone. The exception to that being that I have found that coyotes generally don't fear people near enough. Um, they can be kind of a hazard, particularly in the spring. Again, know your predators, know your areas. Um, they get really kind of aggressive with dogs on the trail during the spring when pups are in dens and things like that. And so kind of know your areas. Um, but yeah, like a bell is going to be more of a deterrent for a cougar or as you know, a black bear than it is for a really angry, ornery grizzly bear who's right, hungry. Cause and, that's a huge part of it too. If you've just stumble upon a set of cubs, that bell isn't going to do anything. No, um, no. Cause the adrenaline again, of that animal is already so high. Yeah. Yeah. Again, know during cubbing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, during seasons when cubs are going to be an issue and you know you're in grizzly bear territory, keep your dogs close, keep an eye on the trail. And as soon as you see them, back up slowly and quietly. Don't run screaming and yelling. That's going to have the opposite effect. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you do, do you have any dogs that you um, do GBS colors with? I have never done it. Um just because that's, I always, I mean, I, the, the number of things I break and lose on the trail is, is astounding. Actually. Um, my local trails are probably littered with a hundred or more clickers that I have just lost over time until I eventually figured out the secret to keeping them with me. Um, lanyards was really the answer there. But, uh, so, I mean, I've never really done it because I've always worried about, you know, the expense of it versus the durability. I know some people that do, if I had a dog who might be a runner, um, who I was pretty sure was going to blow past me and blow past my long line and yank it out of my lines and take off, I might be more tempted to use them. Um, I know the hunters that I know of who use the packs of hounds with the GPS collars. I feel like sometimes they get a little complacent with it and they rely on that GPS collar rather than keeping up with their pack. That's uh, a good point. My dogs. Yeah. yeah if, if my dog's a hundred yards away from me through the wilderness, I can't protect them. I can't stop them. I can't do anything at, at that distance. If, you know, if they're miles away from me, the best I can do is track where they're going and follow them. I can't do anything to intervene on their behalf or anybody else's behalf. So I make a very big effort not to allow that to happen. Yeah, definitely. I know I've looked into the GPS collars as well, and I think a lot of the affordable options out there either work off of cell towers or Bluetooth, which means they're not necessarily that effective for yeah. um, super rural stuff or mountainous terrain yeah. or anything. And then the one that I've looked at, the the Garmin Astro, which is the one that does not have a shock feature, um, yeah. is just crazy expensive. And if I had a young dog that I was more worried about, or if I had two dogs and, you know, one of them, um, yeah, I might consider it. Or if I, yeah, yeah, I might, but I, I also don't have one. Um, it's just, they're so expensive and they're so I would rather expensive. spend more time training and use the long line, um, when needed. Yeah. 
Yeah, because my long lines are very cheap um, and they're very easy to replace. Um, half the time when I'm in the really weird terrain, I'm using a rope with a bolt snap on it as my long line because if it gets trashed, I just cut it off and put on a new one. Um, so they're really cheap and they're really replaceable and they're they're pretty much foolproof if I don't drop it. It's not going to break. It's not going to malfunction. I'm not going to run out of battery or anything like that. So it's a pretty much foolproof way to ensure that my dogs are safe. But also, like I said, if my dog makes it a hundred yards from me or two miles from me and I haven't caught up to them or their training hasn't kicked in, I, I might be able to go track them down. But honestly, I can't help them. I can't protect them. I can't protect anything else from them at that distance. It's pretty much just a matter of me being like, well, I know where they're at. Hope yeah, I'm not going to yeah, walk up to something horrible. Yeah, you're just going to get there in time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I do a lot. I would I would much rather invest my time and energy into making sure that they have a really solid recall. That even if spooked or excited, at a certain point, I can just get their attention and recall them. Um, for some people who've got dogs who have a super high prey drive and there's that odd chance once out of every a thousand encounters that they're just going to be like, yeah, I've got to chase that deer. Sometimes I recommend using a whistle to teach a recall too, because that whistle can cut through a lot, both in terms of mental and distance and, and sound, but a sharp whistle, you know, recall can get their attention and get them back where they need to go and tell them where you are. Not only that, you know, if they get too far and they lose you. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually been meaning to um, start teaching Barley to respond to a whistle um, because as we were talking about earlier when I had the uh, the wave experience on the ocean where he was absolutely within what I would consider um, a comfortable distance for me absent the sound because, you know, we're on a beach that's probably a quarter mile deep um, and I could see him no problem. I knew he was fine, but I also knew he couldn't hear me. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. I've, been, I've been thinking about adding in the whistle just for another thing. I also find, um, there, the times where I felt like I've needed to call a couple times in a row. Um, I personally find using a whistle a little, little bit less intrusive for my, for my partners or other people who are out on the trail. Um, yeah. although I have, I, I lost barley once. Um, hiking and I was yelling his name and I finally found him with some people. Um, and they were like, oh, is this Barley? We've been hearing you yelling just across the lake, but we couldn't figure out where you were to bring him back to you. Um, exactly. And what yeah, had happened that... there was he had actually brought them a stick and they had started throwing it for him. Um, and he, yeah, that'll... at that point, last, last uh, August, did not listen to me if someone else was throwing the stick. Um, we have now fixed that as far as I can, I'm pretty sure, um, we've had to test it a couple of times, but that was like, I was like, I've called this dog off of bears and moose and everything, but I apparently can't call him out of a game of fetch. Um, and now I can. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always the, that's always the, I always joke that my youngest, um, Tango would probably go home with the first person to offer him a hot dog. You know, yeah. <laughs> I hope oh, that's my, not true. No doubt my dog would go home with someone if they was they were throwing something for him. I, 
yeah. if I was standing there and calling him, he would probably come to me. But if I wasn't around or if I wasn't reminding him that I exist, I have no doubt that he would go home with whoever wanted to throw a ball for him. Yeah. Yeah. Barley is a classic case of a dog that is super toy motivated. And that throwing of the stick is the greatest motivation on planet Earth. Yeah. Well, and there's nothing like a screw up or a mistake like that to happen that shows us where the weak spots are. And you did the exact right response, which was to go like, okay, this is clearly something we have to work on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And as we were saying earlier, you don't want to go and test things. Um, but you do, if you run into something that's not working out, then, then you just know that that's a training thing to work on in the future. So let's, let's kind of wrap it up with talking about how outdoor, um, outdoor adventures and whatnot can really benefit some of our more challenged dogs. So we've already talked a little bit about how it's just better for joints. Um, but let's talk about, you know, like anxious dogs and reactive dogs and how in particular getting them out can help them a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So we've all heard the phrase, tired dogs are good dogs. Um, And that's totally true. When we wear our dogs out, they're much more livable, especially if we own things like Border Collies or I've I've got a high drive German Shepherd. Um, And she's she's a maniac. Um, So tired dogs are good dogs. But what happens when that energy is not necessarily geared towards like chasing a ball for 600 hours, but is geared towards chasing their tail or tearing up the furniture and things like that, like anxiety wise. Um, one of the things they do with, with returning soldiers or people who have PTSD or anxiety disorders is they encourage exercise. And the reason they do that is because if you burn up your adrenaline on the treadmill, there's not a whole lot of extra adrenaline for those panic attacks to use up. It's already been spent. Your body can only make so much of it at a given time, you know, before it has to re re reestablish the store. And if you can burn it out in a healthy way, then there's not as much extra to go somewhere else. So for dogs that are really anxious, if we burn that energy out of them, we give them an outlet that doesn't require them to be paranoid about other dogs, doesn't require them to be paranoid about strangers coming up and grabbing their face and petting them and doing those things that make so many dogs uncomfortable and so many people do, especially when you got something cute like a little border collie. Um, Giving that energy and outlet means that there's less of it for the dog to use in destructive ways. It gives it someplace healthy to go. And it's an area where the dog can actually genuinely relax and enjoy themselves. And just what I like to call dog for a while with no fear of interference. A lot of modern civilization just really is kind of antithetical to being a dog. You know, we're like yards, pavement, cars running back and forth, leash laws, you you can't chase squirrels, we're not allowed to eat cats. All that stuff is sort of antithetical to being a dog and particularly to a lot of dog modern you know modern dogs and dog breeds where we had them bred very specifically for very specific things that are now no longer applicable for most people. Giving them a chance to just be a dog, go do dog stuff, um, you know, lick something questionable, pee on a bush, you know, those are great places for dogs to just get rid of that anxiety. And I have found over the years that by being out there on the trail and allowing the dog to dog for a while and working on your relationship with the dog, it brings a level of trust back home with you 
So that not only is the dog tired and thus a better dog, but they have developed a relationship with you in an environment that wasn't stressful. And the relationship wasn't one of instructor and teacher. It was much more equals. And so it, it bonds you a little bit to your dog in a different way than, of course, training does. It creates a bond as well. But when we're not having to worry about there's going to be a strange dog coming down the corner because this is an area where it's unlikely we can both relax. You can relax and your dog can relax. And that relationship can build and deepen and solidify as one of trust because we're having good experiences the entire time. Then we can come home and deal with the fact that the neighbor's chihuahua runs amok and fence fights with me every day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, I kind of think of the, every, every hike or whatever that we can go on, especially the longer ones, but even the short little, you know, like trail runs after work. It's a mini vacation for your dog. Cause if you think about how much time your dog spends just sitting around waiting for you to come home from work, or if you're lucky enough to work from home, just kind of sitting around watching you type on your laptop. Um, yeah, exactly. It's so boring for them. Um, our dogs live such barren lives and just getting them out and letting them sniff and run and pee. And if they want to just walk next to you, that's great too. Um, yeah. Just, but letting them choose what they want to do, because I don't think, um, I don't think we talk and think enough about how, what our dogs get to choose. And, uh, yeah, your dog doesn't get to pick which trail you go to. Um, but if they're off leash, that's probably the most choice that most dogs get in their whole lives. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that. And and dogs that are particularly very anxious tend to have a, a desire for more control than they need of a situation. And that's when they freak out is because they can't control that other dog coming at them. They can't control that person. They can't control so much of their environment. They really have very little choice. I mean, we pretty much decide everything. When you go to the bathroom, when you eat, what you eat, when you sleep, when we leave, when we don't. Um, all those things, we make these choices for a dog. So again, we just get them out on the trail and we let them dog. And you as a human on the trail get to just be. Yeah. Yeah. Because no, you also just get to do whatever you want. And that's so lovely exactly. for both of you. Yeah. Um, exactly. And I know my dog is happier when I'm happier. Um, he's pretty in tune with me. And A, when I'm, when I'm stressed out, I get more irritable with him and I'm less likely to be the kind, fun dog trainer that I would like to be all the time. And he also, you know, if I'm just like tired and relaxed, then he can be tired and relaxed and we can do it together. Yeah. And again, that, that relaxing experience together creates a deepening of that relationship and that partnership where you both get to decompress. Um, you know, we talk about sniff walks for dogs and letting dogs decompress after training and all these other things that we ask of them, but we forget that there's a moment where we need to decompress too. Like as, as trainers, as owners, we need to spend that time and take that time for ourselves because it's pretty stressful managing a dog that's anxious. It's pretty stressful teaching a dog new things, especially if it's not going exactly perfectly, which I can't, I can tell you that it's probably never perfect ever. No, no, I can't relate. My training sessions are always (laughs) flawless. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And so getting out there and decompressing and, you know, they've done countless studies on humans about the benefits of going for a walk in nature and that it's way beneficial for our blood pressure, not just in terms of physical health, but mental health, et cetera. And the same is true for our dogs. Give them a chance to just be a dog and for you to just be a person. And the two of you don't have to worry about all the extra things that are going on in our lives. We can check out for a couple hours, walk a couple of miles, 
meals, have a nice relaxing time, smell some stuff, pee on some questionable things. As if you're a human, I recommend, you know, picking your battles with peeing on questionable things. Um, you know, I've, we've all been there where we've had to, you know, get behind a bush, but make sure nobody's coming, but just being out there and just being a dog and just being a person and being those two things together is incredibly bonding. I mean, it just amazingly a bonding. I get clients who ask me that all the time. Like, well, I'm having a hard time bonding with my rescue dog. And there's, you know, 800 stories as to why that's happening. And I was like, well, when's the last time you just went out and went for a walk? You know, just not, not a walk on the street, just go someplace rural, go someplace remote, go someplace out and just put them on a long line if you can't trust them uh, and, and just hang out together and let the dog decide how fast we're going and what we're stopping at, what we're checking out and where we go, you know, what we do. It's pretty awesome when it happens. Yeah. So. yeah I, I think my favorite part of being a dog owner is hiking and just you know like that moment when your dog stops on his own and looks back over his shoulder at you and you're like yeah you're you're good go on and then they take off like oh my that like little five second video clip in my head is like what makes dog ownership worth it the times where it's <laughs> it's yeah. like a lot of work and a lot of expense and all that and a stuff lot of that sometimes comes with dog ownership <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And there's that moment. Yeah, you're right. It's that moment where you, you unhook the lead and they pause like, really? And you're like, yeah, go rock and roll. And there's so much joy and they never just, you know, amble off. It, they just <laughs> no. sort of burst out of themselves like, woohoo, here we go. And it's so cool to see. And it's so cool to witness. And it's fun to just stand there. And even if you're just sort of moseying down the trail because they're zigzagging back and forth. It's fun for us as dog owners to see our dogs experiencing that level of just complete abandoned joy. They're having the time of their lives and we have fun watching them. I mean, otherwise the internet would not be full of funny dog and cat videos if we didn't enjoy that kind of stuff as, as a species. So it's a great, it's a great thing and it's a great experience. And there's something to be said for just being out there with your dog and just hanging out together. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we have gone on for long enough. I would love to keep yeah. talking, but we should probably wrap this up. So, um, Pine, do you want to let people know where to find you? If you have any, um, good resources that you want to point people towards, um, or online classes, feel free to plug those as well. Yeah. Um, I, the best place to reach me is probably through my Facebook page. Um, Irwin dog training. Um, I have a, fa I have a, I have an email address, pine at erwindogtraining.com. And I've got, you know, a website, erwindogtraining.com, that kind of stuff. But really Facebook is a pretty good way to get me. Um, you can check me out. I've got my classes coming up. I am hoping to start doing online classes. Um, I want to get a little bit more into teaching on a theoretical level than on a, you know, this is how we teach a sit. Um, I spend a lot of time dealing with behavior and stuff like that. And I'm kind of branching out and I'd love to do start doing more online stuff. Um, so hopefully keep an eye on that. I have a seminar coming up in June. That's uh, my intensity dog seminar. And it's the way that it's kind of cracking the code and hitting the right frequency with those dogs that are just a little bit extra. Uh, we've all got, you know, we all know that dog, this is kind of extra energy, extra brains, extra emotions, uh, sometimes all at once. And so it's sort of how to dial those dogs back down to a reasonable and manageable level. 
in a series of steps that's kind of concrete, um, as concrete as you can get with anything in behavior. I mean, you know, it's different dog to dog, but that's about it. Otherwise I'm not a terribly exciting person. I work a lot <laughs> yeah. and I love my job. Oh, so that. yeah, but that's about it. So yeah, just hit me up on Facebook. And if you have any questions, I, I answer questions probably more than I should, to be honest, that should probably steer people more towards the like, Hey, why don't you pay me aspect? But I, you know, if you're somebody from Colorado or Montana or something, and you need, you know, you have a question about something, don't feel free to hit me up. Um, just message me. I would, I would love to help you out. And a lot of times I've got resources in various parts of the world because I, you know, make a lot of contacts through Facebook groups. So yeah, just hit me up. And there's also a ton of Facebook groups out there for hiking with your dog. Although the information can be hit or miss <laughs> yes. how accurate or yeah. safe it like is. Like many so, things on the internet. Yes. Yeah. So maybe you just message me if you really got questions because I'll yeah, point you in yeah, the right direction. Yeah, let's people do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and I am Kayla Fratt and I own Journey Dog Training. You can find me at journeydogtraining.com or find Journey Dog Training on Facebook or YouTube. Um, I have several eBooks and courses available. So go ahead and check those out at journeydogtraining.com. And then you hover over the thing that says get behavior help and you'll see all the options. Um, before we go, make sure that you subscribe to the canine conversations podcast, wherever you find your podcasts, you can also find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. And that's canine all spelled out. Our sponsor for this episode is canineofmine.com. And that's letter K number nine of mine.com. You can always contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. If you'd, you've got a question, some comments, or if you would like to be on the podcast as a guest, we would love to hear from you. And finally, our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk, and our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. We will talk to you guys next time.